0: Welcome to the US MAC Today Podcast. Produced by the Center for U.S. Mexican Studies at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy. In today's podcast, U.S. MEX Fellow, Juan Delgado, discusses census politics in Mexico in his talk titled, Racist, Culture, and Color, Recognizing Afro-Descendant Populations in Colombia and Mexico from 1970 to 2018.
1: My talk today is from one of the chapters of my dissertation. is sort of related to census politics in Mexico and how I understand those politics in terms of an interstitial political field. So basically, the time frame of my analysis is from 1994 to 2015. So before we start, let me show you sort of a map. This is about two centuries in Latin America, between the 1810s, and the 1980s a map of the censuses that uh, have been taken within these two centuries so basically the gray squares here mean that a census was taken the black squares means that people of african descent were included as a category in the census and where, where you see sort of a question mark then it means that it isn't clear what type of question was included so there are many ways of reading this map of censuses One way is sort of a vertical way, sort of uh, from the top down. And there you could see at least three different periods that are highlighted there, right? So from the 1810s to the uh, 1910s, for the most part, there's sort of significant invisibility of categories of people of African descent. This is sort of the post-colonial up to sort of the early 20th century. With the exception of countries like Brazil and Cuba, Nicaragua, perhaps Peru, many of the categories disappear. And, and American countries did not count uh, people of African descent. Then from the 1920s to the 1940s, we have this visibility. So many of the countries that didn't count people of African descent start doing it from the 20s to the 40s. This is related to projects of mestizaje, but also the expansion of social policy in the region up to the 1950s. Then from, from the 1950s to the 1980s, we see again a new period of invisibilization, if you want, of these categories. Now, let's see what happened at the turn of the century. So by the end of the 20th century, we have a very different panorama, right? So from the 1880s to the 2000s, then we have sort of this re-emergence of ethno-racial categories. In the early 80s, only Brazil and Cuba. Again, we have within these 40 years, we have two periods, right? One of Productive invisibility, only Brazil, Cuba, and Colombia were implementing the demographic count of people of African descent. But after the 2000s, and more clearly in the 2010s decade, then we see this, this huge visibility. The majority of countries within Latin America now including questions right related to race and ethnicity for people of African descent, also um, indigenous peoples, but, but the visibility of indigenous people is, is sort of earlier and it has sort of like a different dynamic. So now that we have sort of the empirical patterns, what kind of questions can we ask to this data? So there are many traditional research questions that sociologists, historians, anthropologists have have asked in terms of demographic visibility. Whether to count, right? All the political conversations, whether we should count race at all or not. In Latin America, we had that since sort of the early 20th century. It becomes clear that they should count demographically people of african descent what to count in terms of either race or ethnicity or or both or as as in the us census first ethnicity then race then what counts as ethnicity what counts as race those are the kind of questions that, that we have there whom to count in terms of the categories in latin america still today it is unclear what are the best categories to define people of african descent also the indigenous people either as Black or Afro-Mexican or Afro-Colombian or Afro-Peruvian or Afro-descendant, the category itself. That is a matter of discussion, and I'm going to show you how those sort of politics of categorization play out in Mexico. And how to count, meaning the kind of responses that we should allow people to select. Is it open? Is it closed? How many? In which order? All those questions were subject to political contestation as well. And then lastly, how to report the results. Basically, uh, how do we aggregate the numbers? Perhaps you've heard that Brazil has 51% of people of African descent, but that also depends on how do we aggregate the categories. If we aggregate preto, black, that will create that number. But some people would argue that the categories are different and they are not additive. So that, that is also part of the conversation. So let's jump from the question to the main paradigm that sort of is being used to understand this type of political dynamics. So that is the state center perspective. And, and here we have many, many contributions. So perhaps you can see their familiar names, Anderson, Noble, Scott, Hacking, for instance. Basically this, this paradigm that is sort of diverse in itself Shows the importance of state bureaucracies in designing but also implementing the census. So, we have here many contributions but also findings, right? Censuses or through censuses, states promote a totalizing image of nationally bounded population. That's what we learned from Anderson. But states also create official categories. But also officialize categorical modes of thinking meaning dividing the population into different categories they also reproduce dominant ideologies of the racial difference or sameness basically what we consider an equal or different from and the states also increase the bureaucratic capacity to render legible and organize uh, people's daily experiences that's what we learned from scott is the ability of the state to render legible populations that, or or illegible populations that are not considered the subjects of the states. And that's basically the point that hacking, it's been mentioned since the late 80s, that the enumeration and inclusion of categories create this subjective process of personhood, meaning people start understanding their own lives through these official categories that have been sort of sanctioned by the state. And lastly, there's some research on the symbolic power of the state. It is basically an expansion of the classical paradigm of the state as a coercive apparatus. And for scholars like Marl Luffman, the categorization from the state allows to create this symbolic domination, right? Meaning the state officially defining how populations are divided and how resources are sort of distributed within those populations. So having said that, in recent years uh, there's some sort of call for expanding the state center perspectives and some scholars have highlighted important limitations. So from an analytical point of view, scholars like Rebecca Imai suggest that state center approaches are useful but they exaggerate the correlation between state power and information gathering. Meaning it's not always true that strong states produce more information and weak states produce less information. The relationship between one and the other is more complicated than that. They also believe that this perspective overstates the ability of a state to impose novel categories. So, although we like to think that the state is a coercive power that imposes categories on the population, it is often the case that categories that are already institutionalized or socially institutionalized within the population Are they taken up by the state bureaucrats to sort of render the official categories? In the same vein, they demonstrate that sometimes they overemphasize the role of bureaucrats in developing and implementing censuses. Recent scholarship has shown that non-state actors like NGOs or like lawyers or civic society organizations are actually leading bureaucrats and state agencies into the field to collect data and to produce sort of uh, robust information. And finally they they say that this perspective also overemphasizes the extent to which the state plan in terms of how to conduct a census is actually delivered. They say that sometimes states have some plans in terms of collecting information that are less successful if we could consider other variables. So they are trying to push the field if you want into a broader analytical lenses to understand this. And and that's part of the intended contribution of the paper that I'm writing. I also wanted to show you some empirical limitations. So that is not only related to sort of the analytical limitations but also how different cases are hard to understand if we only take a look at the state agencies or state bureaucrats that are involved. So mm-hmm. just to give you an example, here we have, for instance, Argentina and Venezuela, they, man- mm-hmm. they maintain a statistical invisibility from the 1920s to the 1980s, but for different reasons, right? In Argentina, it was more oriented to showing a project of whitening, not only mestizaje, but, but to ha- highlight the European ancestry, and they were sort of fairly successful at that Whereas in Venezuela, it was a classical mestizaje project, right? They, they didn't want it to show the differences within the Venezuelan population. So we have two cases of absence of information, but for different reasons. Same in Brazil, in the opposite side, we have two cases of visibility, but the reasons for that visibility were also very different, right? In the case of Brazil, they wanted to show mestizaje and, and miscegenation. The mestizaje project in, in Brazil with Roberto Frege it was really strong. Whereas in Cuba, the main reason to sustain that data was to prove that Afro-Cubans were doing better than Afro-Americans. That's sort of part of the Cold War, if you want, in terms of information that happened in the, in the last second of the 20th century. So um, that is to show that, that we really need to go beyond just paying attention to state infrastructures to understand what else is going on in every field where the Cuban Revolution was expanding in terms of access to health and not so much housing, but the structure of occupancy in health but also the structure of the occupational hierarchy, they did, they did better. We can talk about that and it's a really interesting case. And then also just to expand on the empirical limitations, if we compare two cases like Colombia and Mexico, which is part of what I do, we notice that they converge, if you want, in the 2010s in terms of this demographic visibility, but they do that for different reasons as well. So as I will show you in Mexico, the political process that led to this outcome was more related to international pressures and international relations, whereas in Colombia is an internally driven process. By the 1990s, we didn't have like a model uh, in terms of claims making, but also in terms of policy implementation, something that was different for Mexico in the, in the 2010s. To give you some idea about how do I proceed in terms of Mexico, I believe Mexico is a really interesting case for analyzing this. Type of census politics, because I consider it to be an outlier with heuristic functions. Basically, Mexico, from a long-term perspective, share this invisibility with the majority of countries in Latin America. Throughout Mexico's republican history, not a single census had been conducted that would render visible people of African descent. It was only until the inner census survey of 2015, the one I'm, I'm analyzing here. Where we have that visibility. So and from a from a short term perspective, we have pretty much the same type of processes that would explain how Brazil and how Colombia enacted earlier this census visibility, but the outcome was not there. What do I mean by this? We had mobilization asking for demographic visibility, we have International agencies pressuring for that since the 90s, and it was only up to the 2010 that that happened. So that is a puzzling case, if you want, that allows for expanding this agenda beyond the state center approaches. What is for me the most puzzling um, problem of the current ag- agenda is that it fails to address this. Paradox, what I consider the central paradox of contemporary census, and is the fact that um, whereas current processes of, of census making are regarded as political artifacts, they at the same time are not publicly perceived as fundamentally fake, deceptive, or arbitrary. So, just to uh, state my case clearly, there's nothing apolitical about census making. And yet the political character of censuses does not make them fake, deceptive, or fabricated. So although we know that they are becoming contested sites for recognition, rights claiming, redress, reparations, at the same time they remain conceived to be vertical sources of truth claims and knowledge about the national populations. So my question is how do we understand that? That they are sort of politically structured, if you want, and at the same time they remain valid from a scientific or technical point of view. That's why I believe we need to move beyond the state formation to understand how the politics of census making is happening. So this is sort of my intended conceptual contribution. I try to define census making as an interstitial political field. Here I'm following Urdu's perspective on that. He defines a political field as a game in which the stakes are the legitimate imposition of principles of visions and divisions of the social world. So basically categories, the categories that we're going to be talking about are these principles of visions and divisions. As an interstitial field, it emerges from the contingent intersection between global bureaucratic, academic, and social movement fields. Meaning we have different sets of actors that are engaging within a similar game, but for different purposes. And most importantly, using different forms of authority. So here, I believe what is at stake is the normative validity of the global field, the administrative authority that that is defined in terms of feasibility of the census by the bureaucratic field, scientific precision, and human rights. Those type of authority, I think, are at stake at the same time in the same field that is emerging within this other field. And unlike the classic field analysis, which is sort of known in, in sociology, competition within this interstitial political field is not for the top, it's not for sort of accumulating more capital towards the top, but for the center. Merging different forms of authority is important here and legitimizing different categories from different points of view is basically what everyone wants to win in this game. So to be more graphic about my analysis, let me show you how I think in terms of a field. So basically we have a global field, a field of international organizations that are pushing the visibility of people of African descent, also indigenous populations, and more recently, LGBT and Q population, even the peasant population now, it's been sort of claiming this type of visibility. And you have these agencies that have been there since the early 20th century, right? International agencies that are setting up these standards in terms of who has to be considered for a census and and how that person should be considered how that category. So you can think of the International Statistics Agency, but also you can think of the UN agencies that are pushing, in this case, the Mexican state to incorporate that. Then you have the bureaucratic field of state agencies. Here we have, as you will see, different state agencies engage in this field. And, And basically what they're sustaining is this administrative authority in terms of how the census should be conducted, the resources that need to be allocated, and the type of compliance that is allowed between sort of the normative pressures and the feasibility that bureaucratic agencies are defining in a a given moment. Then you have the scientific authority of research institutions. Usually you have either anthropologists or sociologists, sometimes demographers who are there, sometimes on behalf of these international agencies, sometimes on behalf of state agencies, legitimizing the precision, the technical robustness of the procedures, setting up the boundaries of what is able to be accomplished and the type of categories that uh, can be included in a given census. And finally, you have the social movement organizations within the social movement field, that for the most part appeal to a moral authority. Basically, the need to include Pluto populations that had inhabited presumably these countries for so many years and that have not been included within the policy and in this case, within the census. So, as you can tell, it's really hard to define the boundaries of the different types of, of authorities that are at stake here. Sometimes you have this uh, combination, right? different forms, but I think that's the the type of field that actors are navigating when they engage in census politics. Another concept that I was planning to include in this paper is the one related to legitimation of centrality, which is basically the, the type of practices that I try to trace in this field. Practices that aim to transform these categories through the merging of different forms of authority in a way that position the actors that are defending those categories and that they are appealing to the forms of authority at the center of the field. So, as I will show you, many different actors that engage in this field from different poles or from different angles ended up at the center using both the moral authority of the social movement field, the technical authority of the research center, the bureaucratic capacity of the state, and the normative authority of the global field to legitimize the inclusion of one category or the other. So before we gain, we go into the specifics, a little bit of data and methods. I did this through uh, 12 months of multi-field work. I followed this mixed method data collection. In total, I had 36 interviews, 75 uh, 75 minutes each, approximately. The documental corpus of primary sources is about 350 pieces. ID, coding, analytic methods, several waves, some descriptive, more process-oriented, axial, and finally I did the theoretical coding. I was hoping I could show you the actual map of categories, but I didn't have time, but that's basically sort of the um, approach that I followed with this data. So let me show you the final picture of Encuesta Intercensual. The final question, as it was written in the Intercensal Survey, was de acuerdo con su cultura historia y tradiciones usted se considera negra negro es decir afromexicana afromexicano o afrodescendiente as you will see the order matters but also the the, the type of answers that were there yes yes in part who knows which part no and don't know right this was the first time that people of afro mexican descent was included in the census In total, we have 1.4 million people of Mexico self-identify as people of African descent, which is basically 1.2% of the population. In terms of absolute numbers, we have uh, the state of Mexico and then Veracruz and Guerrero as the main entities. With the majority of the absolute population, in terms of concentration, we have Guerrero, Oaxaca, and Veracruz. Perhaps in this census, in the 2020 census, because they removed that response option, it will go from 1.2 to 1.7, but, but we'll see. That's also open. So briefly, I want to go over the main set of periods of analysis that analyzed. They're sort of well-developed in the paper, but, you know, for the sake of time, I'm going to go briefly on the different dynamics, and then if you have any questions, I'm happy to expand it in the QA. We have, I think, a first moment of this field dynamics that happened between 1994 and 2008. What I think opened the field is this failed international legitimation strategy in the global field. Mexico signed in 1977, this international accord against all forms of racial discrimination. But from the 70s to 1994, the Mexican officials in Switzerland were continuously telling the committee that oversee this agenda that Mexico didn't have either racism or racial discrimination. Basically, they said that those ideals were foreign to the Mexican population, that that was something that would happen in South Africa, but not in Mexico. And to some extent they could carry out that narrative onto nineteen ninety-four, when the Chiapas uprising exploded. They also tried a month right a month after the Zapatista uprising, they kept the same narrative. They say, Well, that's different, that happened because we are a poor country, not because we're having racism or racial discrimination. And of course they have a huge backlash from the CERT which is a committee that oversees this international treaty. So there you, you see in the graph this strategy from the Secretary of International Relations trying to legitimize themselves, but also the Mexican state, before the third. And because that failed, that sort of created a new type of policies, and that also created a new type of agencies within the Mexican state, most notably the case of Conapre which is el Consejo Nacional para Prevenir la Discriminación. So by the 2000s, Mexico was already uh, implementing these scores. Now we had this agenda and and had this institution. And we have Fox as president admitting that racial discrimination was a public issue in Mexico. So with that, we we moved from denying that racial discrimination was a problem in Mexico to creating a law that for the most part like any thief but also um, some agencies that would oversee and that would take care of this issue so this is what i call the opening of the field then in a second moment we have a much more sort of complicated picture of the field now we have different agencies involved there's growing pressure towards inehi and we have at least two type of strategies before i go into that let me explain the the different agencies so on the top left side of the picture you see conapre and the mdcm which is sort of a coalition of state agencies they call it a movement against racial discrimination of state agencies that start developing this within the bureaucratic field and the third was now more inserted, and uh, in many events they were invited for the first time to be part of this event in Mexico. INEHI is there, set off within the academic and bureaucratic field, and the PUMC. It's a program from the National Public University in Mexico that developed their own survey in the coastal cities of Oaxaca and Guerrero to pressure INEHI to include people of African descent because actually in the census of, of 2010, where it was supposedly scheduled to, uh, this to happen, it didn't happen. You know, he refused to include people of African descent, claiming that people were not ready and that, the, and, and that people would not understand the question. So that's why Mexico didn't render visible the, this population in 2010. Red, which is on the lower right side corner of the graph, sort of created this coalition with PUMC to pressure INEHI to conduct census. Then we have ECOSTA, Epoca, and Mexico Negro, which are the main Afro-descendant organizations that by this time were sort of engaging in this. What is interesting about this graph is that you can trace the different positionalities of the categories right? So for the international agencies and the bureaucratic field, the category that should be counted and included in the census was Afro-descendant, whereas for one part or, or, or one section of the social movement field, it was Afro-Mexicano. But for other organizations allied with these academic institutions, it was black, right? So we have three different categories and different agencies where and organizations were sort of pressuring inehi right, to include this category. And basically, they claimed that people would confuse Afro-Mexican with Mexican that people wouldn't understand what is the difference between Afro-Mexican and Mexican and that the majority of the population would say, yes, I'm Mexican because that is the last part of the word that they would retain. Because of that, they believed that the population was not ready and they ended up not including the question in the 2010 census. So because of that, this alliance between Afro-Mexican organizations on the red either the PUMC from UNAM, they created their own survey. It was like a communal survey. And they sort of try to demonstrate that people do understand the question and that people were ready to be counted. Basically, the question was not there in 2005. It was only there in 2015. So finally, what happened between 2015 and 2017 is that we have this convergence of different actors, but also different categories towards the center of the field. So here it's hard to, it's hard to see, but we have new actors from the same fields, but we have different actors pushing for the the same. So let me show you from the bureaucratic field, what happened. Ineji now is convinced that the question had to be introduced. That's basically because of CONAPRED Alliance with INA. And they also created within the Mexican state under the leadership of the Secretary of International Relations, the gt CERT Working Group. So that created in itself, within the bureaucratic field, a mobilization to pressure INEHI, and, and those were the words of former CONAPRED director. We sort of pressure INEHI, we convinced INEHI that this is something that we had to, to, to do within the Mexican state. Uh, but we also have the convergence of many other organizations. So we have the PUMC, The Red, Mexico Negro Epoca Costa, but also CONAFRO and others that I didn't have space there to include to sort of push for this type of recognition. I could have expanded a lot more on the details, but I'm happy to discuss that on the Q&A. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the US Max today podcast. The Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy contributes to the ongoing integration process between the U.S. and Mexico by providing a forum of thought leaders to engage in public dialogue and training. The center supports a vibrant community of innovative scholars and practitioners and undertaking cutting-edge research to guide policy decisions. For more information about the center, visit usmax.ucsd.edu and or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Till next time.